Have you played yet? I mean, I don't want to, like, have to get a liver transplant, so no, not really. So, you guys, one of your fellow listeners created a blood and wine drinking game. We posted it a few weeks ago, and I realized earlier today that we have yet to mention it on the podcast. So, Kristen, Tyler, and I just wanted to tell you thank you so much, because that game is fun. I mean, we haven't done it, but... I mean, it is one that I'm like, oh, oh, damn, y'all. When she says take a sip every time... Make sure it's a sip because <laughs> I um I was editing the other day and was thinking about it as I was editing. I was just like, oh, my damn. <laughs> if I was playing that right now, I would I'd be gone. Oh, man. But it's so much fun. And like, I love it when our listeners send us stuff that they make. It, honestly, you guys, it makes our day. Can't even. Yes. It's literally highlight of the week, month, everything. It is. So if you want to check out that blood and wine drinking game, it's on our Instagram. Just scroll back. It's been a few weeks, but um, it's there and it's awesome. So thank you again, Kristen. Yes, thank you so much. And while we're at it, hey, you guys, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we didn't forget to do it. <laughs> we didn't. Nope. We, we're, we're on a roll. Batting uh, a thousand? Is that the... Is that the sports phrase? I don't yeah. know. Okay. Yay. <laughs> and if you are uh, playing along with this episode, now is probably your time for your first drink, because this is going to be a hard right transition into Patreon. <laughs> um, if y'all have not checked out Patreon, absolutely uh, head over there, do it. We have a ton of murder mini episodes for all of our patrons. We have different uh, tiers of rewards from you know, given a shout out in the episode that you probably heard us do before or uh, all the way to choosing a topic and kind of directing your own episode. So if you are interested in all that, head over to Patreon and uh, check it all out. Yes. In my head, for some reason, I thought you were about to say head on over to murdermini.com. That's not right. Don't That's, go there. That's I, not I our website, I, if it exists. It's not our website. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I cannot promise you're not going to get uh, either murdered or a computer virus. <laughs> no promises. Um, be sure also to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, Google Play, all the things. We're, th- we're there. So subscribe and you get notifications for all of our new episodes on Tuesdays. Boom. Every Tuesday. <laughs> Blood and wine. Every Tuesday. Dramatic music, like slow talking, like it's a drama. Doom. Tuesdays at 8, 7 central, only on Investigation Discovery. <laughs> like that? Basically. <laughs> so, last week's episode, uh, you know that we had a tie. Uh, both our cases we were equally intense, and uh, honestly, we just didn't have it in us to d- try to pick one over the other. So as many of y'all know, when we have episodes that end in a tie, next topic is a Survivor episode, which I always appreciate because it's kind of like not a breath of fresh air from uh, the horrifying and intense true crimes we do because, dear God, Survivor episodes are some of the most intense we do. Uh, but it's at least something that has a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Nope, that's dying. Uh, 
that's, it's the, that's it's the exact the opposite, actually. <laughs> it, it, uh, it has a darkness at the end of the tunnel, and that's a good thing. Well, whatever the phrase is, and it, the story is, you know, you know it's going to end with some kind of happy ending and surviving, uh, which is always nice to have after doing uh, a ton of just real fucked up murder cases. Uh, it's nice to shift over to some uh, real fucked up survivor cases. I think what I'm about to bring today is quite possibly one of the most intense cases that we've ever had on our podcast, so... Oh my god, okay. Well, I'm gonna need wine for that. Oh yeah, you definitely will, and so will I. Okay, so uh, why don't we just uh, jump right on ahead, and uh, Brittany, why don't you tell me about the wine you're drinking today? Okay, well, I'm really excited about my wine for this episode, and I totally pivoted like an hour ago and completely changed what I was going to do and had to do new wine research. I know, you were telling me earlier today, you were like, oh, yeah, I'm be drinking this Chardonnay, yada, yada. And then right before you were like, just kidding, no, I'm not. So I I have no idea what you're about to consume. <laughs> wine. Um. So well, this... <laughs> This is the Vine Hugger Pinot Noir from Russian River Valley, California. And for those in Dallas, this may sound a little bit familiar because Vine Hugger is 60 Vines exclusive private label wine. And 60 Vines is a restaurant that's here in Dallas. I think there's just only like two locations. And they teamed up with veteran Sonoma winemaker Bill Nuttall to create six premium tap wines that they have in restaurant from Sonoma uh, Vineyards. And it's under this Vine Huggers label. And so, yes, if you're wondering, 60 Vines is the only place you can get these wines. Oh, well, that's convenient for all of our listeners not in <laughs> Dallas. Sorry, you guys. Um, I will explain even more once I tell you about this wine, why I did it. So 60 Vines, they actually make two different Sauvignon Blancs. One is in a California style. One is a New Zealand style. They have a Pinot Noir, which is what I'm having tonight, a Cabernet Sauvignon, bubbles, and a rosé. Not bubbly wine, just like children's like with the wand and blowing it bubbles. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. No, mm. bubbly sparkling wine, Tyler. So 60 Vines is actually called that because they have 60 different wines on tap, which is a lot more of a sustainable way to have wine. So you get to enjoy it more like the winemaker intended by the glass at the perfect temperature. And it has a very fresh taste in every single pour from the barrel. And this restaurant is arguably one of my absolute favorites in Dallas. And the reason I have this Pinot Noir is because 60 Vines has been closed for a while. They recently reopened and they were doing a special where if you buy a pizza, you get a free bottle of wine. And this bottle of Vine Hugger Pinot Noir, if you were to go to the restaurant and buy it, it's $59. Oh my God. <laughs> so when they were like, and a free bottle of wine, I'm like, can I spend $14 and give them like an 80% tip? Absolutely. And still spend less than half I would have on this bottle? Yes. So. Wait, so you're telling me you only bought one pizza and one bottle of wine? 
I did. I fucked up. You it was did. one of those things where I thought you could only get one and one. And so that's all I did until I got there. And they were like, bring it out to some people. And it's like three for you, two for you. And I'm like, I made a mistake. You did. <laughs> you can throw that pizza in the fridge. It reheats. I definitely ate the entire pizza tonight. It was wonderful. So this Pinot Noir, I have never had their Pinot Noir Especially when I go out to a restaurant, you guys know me, Pinot Noir is not one that I'm normally going to pick, but honestly, it sounded really good because it has smells of ripe raspberry, pomegranate, and ripe strawberry, and then there's a little bit of a hint of some toasty oak. On the palate, it feels like satin, and there's lots of flavors of wild berries and baking spices. So this sounds like one of those Pinot Noirs. Now, granted, it's a California Pinot Noir. Um, isn't Maomi a California? It, it Yeah, that's it actually re- what I was thinking when you were describing that. Like, oh, kind of like Maomi. Exactly. So I think this is going to be one of those Pinot Noirs that's very similar to a cab, and I'm really excited about it. The other part that is really fun is it's in a plastic bag. It uh, literally looks like a blood bag. Uh, yeah, that is definitely one you'd uh, hook on a little little IV tower. Listeners, Brittany's about to drink a bottle of wine out of a Ziploc. Just, <laughs> just so y'all know. Oh my That's god. That's where we are at this point. Tyler, it's an adult Capri Sun. I just <gasps> need to poke a straw in here. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm not going to. I've got a glass, but uh, because it's in this nifty, um, this is like one of those things that you put alcohol in, we need to sneak it in somewhere with a metal detector. Oh, yeah. It's like a giant pocket shot, except Uh, uh, it's not pocket sized at all. uh, You should keep that to reuse it just for that reason. I, I honestly will, because think about not for sneaking it in somewhere, but when you, you know, when we can once again go places, when you go to parks and beaches and like pools and stuff, and you can't bring glass bottles. Because of all the beaches we go to. Our listeners might go to beaches. Oh, okay. But unless they're in Dallas, they're not getting this wine, apparently. <laughs> I I know they're not. I'm not <laughs> reusing the wine. I'm reusing the container. <laughs> Um, so it's just like a little screw top, and we'll see if I can get this open. Oh, God. Okay. It's on there really tight. It's like they had someone screw it on as tight as they possibly could. Um, I'm kind of nervous I'm going to make a mess. You, you know, because you don't really pour Capri Suns. True. There's actually a restaurant in Austin, or a bar in Austin on West 6th that makes, or that sells adult Capri Suns. I don't know how they do it. Because it's literally a, like, sealed Capri Sun, but half of it's vodka. Um, so, I have heard of those. Look at how much I put into my wine glass, and then look how much... This is legit a bottle of wine. Because yeah. with it being in plastic, I, you know, I'm like, is this really 750 milliliters? Yes, it is, because I just filled my glass a lot more than I normally would, and only used about a fourth of that so yeah you went uh almost tyler pour right there well it came out really fast okay and it also was like a silent pour it didn't make Uh any sounds i know so i'm gonna let that breathe i don't know if it needs to breathe it's in a plastic bag this is a new world to me and i don't it's it's a whole new world and i don't know how to handle (laughs) a hundred thousand wines to taste seriously though that's that's actually our goal that's our want that's our blood and wine uh, <laughs> song to drink a hundred thousand wines 
I mean, I'm down. That's going to take a long time. We're going to need to, like, can you, I don't know, get, like, pre-board for a liver transplant? Can we just, like, get on that list now? (laughs) If If we had, okay, I said try 100,000 wines. I didn't say drink 100,000 bottles, okay? Okay, because I'm going to open a bottle to sip it and then not (laughs) drink the whole thing. That's wasteful. It was just Earth Day. And that is why you should go to somewhere like 60 Vines where they have wine on tap and you can taste it by the glass. Thank you very much. That was a great circle (laughs) around my wine portion of the episode so tell me about yours (laughs) okay the wine i'm drinking today it is the 2019 chamine des sables mediterranean mediterranean rosé it's french (laughs) and i feel like anytime i try to uh speak french uh i sound like my tongue just grew three times its size in my mouth Anyways, it is a French rosé. Um, it's a rosé blend. And it's from the south of France. And it's actually a Rhone blend. I don't know what that means, but that's what it said. And this wine in particular, it's very fresh and light and crisp and delicious. Um, it's this very beautiful pink color that's like very pale pink. Uh, similar to most French rosés you see that are almost such a pale pink that they lean like a coral color. Which, as y'all know, those are my favorites. They are. I'm definitely drinking a Brittany wine. You're actually drinking a wine I've had, and I'm very interested to see what you think, because this doesn't normally happen, We, which is surprising to think about it. But I've had this wine a couple of weeks ago, and I'm interested to see what you think. I liked uh, it, I'm, obviously. I'm interested, too. I like rosé. It's never my go-to, but I had to buy this one uh, because of the bottle. Literally, only reason I bought it was the bottle. It's, I mean, shaped like a like a curvy woman, like an hourglass figure person. Yes. I would say but, like an hourglass, but not like the, not as skinny in the middle, obviously, because it's a bottle of wine. But yeah, it curves in the middle. Yeah, th- this bottle, she's skinty. But this wine, it is light-bodied. Uh, the flavors are strawberry and citrus, mainly. And uh, again, the biggest about this wine is it's, like, style and look. And it's very much a, um, I don't want to say, like, iconic bottle, because I've never heard of it. It can't be that iconic. But it's, <laughs> like, a statement piece kind of wine bottle. I, and, could, I could get behind that. Okay. Um, and it's also a screw top. Even better. And I got this one, it was like $9, I think, total wine. Mm-hmm. So uh, if it's good, definitely not bad for a um, for a nice French rosé. I just cannot believe how much you pour into your glass. It always blows my mind. Th- that's like half the glass. <laughs> this is the kind of pour that if you got, if you were at a restaurant and you ordered a glass, you'd be like, ooh, I'm gonna tip my waiter extra. But you wouldn't be like, Oh my god, that's way too much. Who says that when they order wine at a restaurant? I don't know. (laughs) Because, what do you smell? It's very floral. Like, shoving your nose into a carnation kind of of floral. 
Do you feel like you're a bee? Oh, um, like buzzing and shit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess. Yeah. I, I, yeah, okay. All right. Well, I don't really have anything to cheers with, so I'm going to cheers with the bag, and it's not going to sound great, but are you ready to cheers? I am ready to cheers, and I'm interested to hear what your little uh, glass and Capri Sun slosh sounds like. It's but... good. I don't know. Let's see. We'll see. Cheers. Cheers. Silent. It, it sounded silent. Yeah, yeah. And mine is a stemless, so it didn't even clink. It just, like, thunked. Such great audio. <laughs> you know, I would say with this, it's not a sweet wine. It's not super dry. Semi-dry, or whatever that would be. Like, it's not sweet, but it doesn't, like, leave your mouth parched when you drink it the first flavor that came to mind was like strawberry banana oh that's weird dude yeah i feel like the only wine i've ever had that i've ever gotten a banana hint have been some chardonnays oh yeah this i don't know i'm confused uh it's fine it's a very short lasting finish and there's not a ton of uh complexity and stuff there it would definitely be a great wine for kind of uh sitting out by the pool or at the beach and having it and you know just having that kind of refreshing wine uh definitely not one i would have with honestly any food i think this could be overpowered very quickly yeah but yeah it's not bad it's a totally solid uh french rosé I'm glad you like it. I know rosés, like I said, they're not your favorite, so I'm always surprised when you do one. I like to, you know, I like to keep everyone on their toes. Well, speaking of keeping everyone on their toes, let me talk about this $59 uh, plastic bottle. (laughs) Um, Okay, this wine's really good. It is light to medium bodied, so I go back on what I said about it maybe being similar to a cab. It's not. It's very much a Pinot Noir I'm getting those wild berry flavors, the hints of that toasty oak uh, to smooth it out on the palate. The tannins are very tame. There's nothing harsh about this wine. And you do get those interlaced notes of baking spices. So if we're comparing this to like a Maomi, it's nowhere near as heavy as that. Maomi is a lot heavier than something like this. This one is a perfect Pinot Noir that can be drank alone. You can have it with like pasta like some light dishes um chicken fish that kind of thing like if you're one of those people who wants to drink a red wine with a fish by all means drink whatever you want uh but i think this one would pair really nicely Hmm. i'm really happy with it i'm like i said i'm not a huge pinot noir drinker but this one is really good i'm i'm a fan i'm a fan of this nice i'm even more of a fan of the fact that it was free uh fair that makes everything taste better which I've been to 60 Vines before, and they have all the wines on tap, and they also have bottles. And I'm pretty sure me and Mama split a bottle. So I've never had the Vine Hugger. But I do also know they have a Vine Hugger wine club, which is really cool. Another way you can get the wines. But I'm a fan. Okay. Well, we've uh, got our wine. We've got our topic. I need to go pop my wine in the fridge for a hot sec but uh once i return Brittany, why don't uh why don't you tell me about your survival case okay 
All right. Is your rosé chilling? It is chilling. All right. Are you chilling? Yeah. Yeah, I'm chilling. Okay. I'm chill. I'm about to get you out of that chill and scare the oh, shit out of joy. you. Okay. Well, let me get a change of pants ready. <laughs> um. Okay. So you're going to know what case I'm doing right off the bat. Remember when we were in New York for the Forensic Files premiere and mm-hmm. we met Jess and Russ from Wife of Crime? Oh, and God. Jess told us about one of those horrifying survivor stories. Oh, my God. Yep. I, I am doing the survival of Allison Botha. Okay. Well, calling it right here. Brittany just won this episode. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Okay. I want to know everything about this case. I'm actually really excited you're doing it because when Jess was telling us about it, I mean, it was a quick summary overview. They actually covered this case back, I mean, I guess it would be in, February. in one of episodes in February. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely check that episode after this one. But even just her kind of quick summary when she was telling us about it. Oh my God. Okay. Yes, without further ado, I'm going to shut the hell up. Tell me (laughs) everything. Okay, well, the sources I used, there's a documentary called Allison on Amazon Prime. And then also I found an article in Cosmopolitan, which I believe it was the South Africa Cosmopolitan website, not the United States one. That's also because this happened in South Africa. So there you go. So on December 18th, 1994, Allison was 27 years old. Another source said she was 24, but the documentary said 27 and it was her. So, which that's the other, like, just so you know, this documentary is like, Allison's in it. This is her story, her words, which like we've talked about in every Survivor episode makes it all the more horrifying. So here we go. Allison was 27 years old and she lived in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. It was one of those beautiful summer days, because remember, opposite side of the hemispheres, December equals summer. Um, I will never get used to that. (laughs) All of our Southern Hemisphere listeners being like, I don't know, if you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or any of the many holidays in winter, it's like, oh, that was so great. Who wants to go to the beach? We're like, that was so awesome. We're going to have our traditional meal that's like, Ice cream and watermelon, because it's hot outside. That's weird. You know, one thing that I feel like people in general, we don't talk about the fact that the seasons are opposite in the Southern Hemisphere. Like, that's not a topic that comes up very often. I don't know really why it would, but I feel like with how often people, especially here in America, I feel, talk about the weather and the seasons and summertime and winter and fall is amazing with the pumpkin spice lattes and the scarves and the boots. It falls my favorite, by the way. Uh, ew. Um, I mean, <laughs> fall's great. Winter's the best, obviously. But those are things that are very Northern Hemisphere based. Like, Do y'all... In the Southern Hemisphere, is y'all's pumpkin spice time, like, March? I don't know. Let us know, you guys. I know we have some listeners in Australia. If you could explain your fall to us, I I need to know what it's like to have fall when I have spring. Okay. So it's December 18th, summer day. Allison spent some time on the beach all day with her friends. They ordered pizza. They played games. They went to one of their houses, and they're just having a really good night. But eventually, the fun had to end, and so around 3 a.m., it was time for Allison to head home. 
She gets home and her usual spot on the street is taken. And so she has to drive down the street a little bit, parking further away than she normally would. The moment that she parked her car, someone approached her on the driver's side, which for in America, it's on the passenger side, like it's opposite. And they held a knife to her throat. She was told to scoot over, get in the passenger seat, and he got into the driver's seat. He said he'd kill her if she didn't listen. And he starts driving off with Allison in the passenger seat. And he said he needed to borrow her car for about an hour, and he didn't want to hurt her. And Allison wasn't wanting to think the worst, and so she stayed in the car. She was like, nope, this isn't bad. Like, he's just borrowing my car. This sucks, but like, okay. This guy says his name is Clinton, and he asks her if she has a boyfriend, and this conversation seemed friendly, and it gave her this very false sense of security. So then Clinton pulls over, and he's picking up some other guy who gets into the back seat. Allison catches a glimpse of this guy's eyes in the rearview mirror, and he he literally looks like pure evil. And so all her potential good feelings immediately washed away in that moment, because his eyes just... She, she knew she wasn't going to be going home. She could oh. tell. So the two guys drive Allison out to this really dark area of town. So they pass all the streetlights, like it's dark. They go down this side road, and they stop the car. Clinton, the guy in the that had been driving the car, he asks Allison if she's going to put up a fight. And he forced her to have oral sex. And then he also performed oral sex on her. And he was also saying so many just very degrading things to her. And then he raped her. And then this guy who had been in the back seat and like gotten out of the car, he called Clinton Franz. And then Franz, you know, who we thought was Clinton, turns to this other guy and calls him Tiens. And so this is when Allison is like, oh, shit, they gave me fake names. Like, they literally just called each other their real names, Franz and Tiens. And so Franz offered Allison to Tiens, and he rapes her as well. Tiens said, you know, oh, I want to fuck her. And Franz, you know, who had just finished raping Allison, was like, Tiens, she's a lady you need to speak proper around her which makes my blood boil so much i can't even oh my god like acting like you're being any kind of fucking gentleman no so they both raped her and then they choked her and the next thing she knew she was unconscious she started coming to and she realized that they had removed her from the car And they were stabbing her in the abdomen and, like, her pubic area. And she ended up being stabbed over 37 times. Oh, shit. Tiens was the first of the two to start cutting her throat. And Franz started cutting it more afterward. Um, She was slashed in the throat 17 times. She then sees, like, their feet getting smaller. And they get into the car and they drive off. They, as they're driving away, throw her clothes out of the car, and that's it. So she's laying there, and Allison doesn't really feel any pain, but she started to hear this sound. And she realized that it was the sound of her breathing, and she was breathing out of her severed windpipe. Oh my god. So there's this gurgling sound that was absolutely horrifying. It's a sound that... 
I don't even want to try to imagine. But Allison knew that she was dying. The next thing she realizes is she feels like she leaves her body and she can see herself from above laying there. And everything was silent. There was no sound. But she quickly realized that she wasn't ready to die. So she felt like she went back into her body. She wanted a second chance. And then the sound started again. And it was her breathing. So one of Allison's first things that she thought of as soon as she was like, no, I'm going to fight. She wanted to make sure that Franz and Tien's were caught. So she picks up her hand and she writes their names in the sand. She wanted to make sure they could never do this to anyone else. And then she also wrote, I love mom. So after she finished writing, she's still laying there and she feels something wet around her legs because again, she's, she's nude and she puts, you know, kind of puts her hands down to feel what's going on. And she realizes that her intestines are outside of her body. She can see her shirt nearby and she can reach it. So she grabs her shirt, pulls it towards her and uses it to, to cover her abdomen and essentially hold everything up and inside. She uses her other hand. So one hand is holding the shirt against her abdomen. And the other hand, she's kind of pulls herself up and starts to crawl. Her goal is to make it towards the road. And so she's in the sand and like cut glass. And she quickly realizes that she was not going to be able to crawl all the way to the road. Like it was taking too much time. It was a really awkward uh, motion that she was making with her injuries. And so she was like, I need to stand up. I need to try to walk to the road, which honestly, she stands up and I don't know how that was possible. Yeah. Literally, how? Well, it was definitely with a great effort. That's for damn sure. So she finally gets to her feet, but then all of a sudden everything goes black, except that it, it hadn't gone black. She realizes that she was looking up at the sky. And so she puts her hand up to her throat And she feels this gaping wound in her neck. The muscle on the side of her neck had been severed. Um, Her head was nearly decapitated. So it was barely hanging on. So it had fallen back in between her shoulder blades when she stood up. I literally don't understand how. How all of this. I know. This is some of the strongest willpower I think I've ever seen. And it it doesn't sound real. Like, no. this sounds like some movie shit that would happen. But no, this was Allison's life. I mean, this sounds like the like some movie shit that you would watch and be like, really? No one can survive. That's ridiculous. And yet this is real life. Yeah. No, oh my god. Well, and the fact that, like, oh, no one could survive this. That was totally what Franz and Tien's thought when they left her. They were like, yeah, she's dead. Like, she's going to bleed out. Like, we're good. So her head's back, barely hanging on by what feels like a few flaps of skin. So she takes her other hand. So, again, one hand is holding her stomach, holding her intestines in. She takes her other hand and literally pulls her head up so she can see. And so she's holding her abdomen and holding her head up and she starts walking towards the road. In the documentary, Allison was saying that this feeling of making it to the road almost felt like she was floating. Like it didn't feel real because the next thing she knew she was at the road 
and she collapses just in the middle of this road because she made it to her where she was trying to get to and it, it had literally drained every bit of energy she had. So she's laying in the road and she can hear a car coming and she immediately starts to panic because she's like, oh shit, that could be Franz and Tien's. But the car actually speeds up and goes around her and leaves. Which, who the, who the hell does that? By the way, number one, who does that? I get being scared, but come on, do something. For real. And it's like obviously a person lying there. Yes. So she's laying there, honestly feeling relief because it wasn't France and Tien's. And then she heard another car and it actually stopped. And this man... Tian Elard, apologies if I'm not saying that correctly. Um, he was on vacation, 20 some odd guy, and he saw Allison in the middle of the road. He immediately stops his car and runs out to help her. He runs over to her and he takes her hand and he takes his own shirt off of his back to cover her up because, again, she's nude, laying in the middle of the street. And thank God. His friend who was with him had a cell phone, which was a brand new technology at the time. Because remember, this was 1994. So luck, I mean, if any, was partially on her side in the fact that she was found by someone who was very caring and had means to communicate with someone else, like with the outside world, without having to leave her there. Um, Which I guess he probably wouldn't have. I bet he would have picked her up and put her in the car. But... He lays there with her while his friend calls the paramedics, and they were about a 15-minute drive from the hospital, but it took 40 minutes for the ambulance to arrive. And when the paramedics put Allison in the back, Tian was with her, and he said in the documentary he felt like they were driving so slow, as if they had already accepted that she was not going to survive, and so they they weren't in a hurry. No. Well, and one thing that's pretty amazing is this incident that happened in Tian's life. It actually is what made him decide to become a doctor. So he's a doctor now. Oh, my. So Allison gets to the hospital. And in all, only 90 minutes had passed since she pulled up to her house in her car. And that is counting waiting 40 minutes in the road for the ambulance. So all of this happened very quickly. Oh, my God. And another thing that we didn't really touch on in the beginning is how scary it was that she was home. Like, she had made it home. She was just getting out of her car. Yeah, she was just parking, you know, in front of her house or a little bit down. Like, it. there's no reason to think anything could happen or go wrong from that. When Allison arrived, doctors did not think that she was going to make it. Their, the injuries she had were unlike any they had ever seen. Just the amount of ferocity and brutality and cruelty that was inflicted on her body. They didn't think she was going to make it. I mean, that would be my first thought. But then also, I would just be so shocked that she already has made it this far that I'd be like, you know what? Shit. She probably is going to make it. If she survived this much so far, I I don't understand how she didn't die right then and there, you know, where she was left. Yeah, I know. So her neck injury was from ear to ear. Her trachea had been severed. And like I mentioned earlier, she was breathing through it. 
through a gaping hole above her collarbone. And the doctors, you know, look, they're looking at her neck wound. And one of the other doctors is like, oh, but that's not all and pulls back the sheet. And that's when they see the wound to her abdomen. And she had been completely disemboweled. There were large loops of her small intestine lying across her stomach. And to make matters even worse, if they even could be, her bowels were completely contaminated everywhere with beach sand, charcoal, and something that looked like some type of animal fat. So just things that had been on the ground in the beach were inside her stomach, or like inside her abdomen. Because her her intestines and organs just fell out. Oh my god. And she had to pick them up and hold them in with a t-shirt. Just that image of like holding your organs and there's leaves and twigs and shit. Just like. I know. With all of that, Allison was still conscious. And she was still conscious enough to sign her name on some of the consent forms. And her handwriting wasn't even bad. It looked like normal handwriting. Not someone who was literally sliced to what should have been death i mean i'm just gonna keep saying this over and over i how literally i do not understand any of this she again if y'all playing the drinking game get ready she is such a boss ass bitch I, i i don't think i've ever heard a story of someone this impressive fact or fiction and this is real and i don't know i'm speechless obviously you are very speechless as am i there it's hard to make like commentary on this case because it's so mind-boggling that you don't really know how to respond to it because i'm like i just keep reminding myself this is real this happened and allison survived it yeah i mean there are only so many different ways you could say what the fuck (laughs) not only did she sign her name she also wrote down her mom's name and number so they could reach out to her before they took her to surgery. Doctors, in all honesty, are not sure how Allison survived. And a lot of doctors don't like referencing to something as a miracle, but these doctors, with how she was injured and how she survived, they can't see it as anything but a miracle. Somehow, in her neck injury, none of the major blood vessels, nerves, or her esophagus were injured. Those would have caused death. And again, she was slashed, not stabbed, slashed in the throat 17 times, but they didn't hit any of that. That, I mean, that's a miracle. And enough so that when she stood up, her head fell backwards. Mm -hmm. So literally, it's not just a somehow these were missed. It's like her spine, carotid, and esophagus were probably the only things that were not slashed open. Yeah. And... There were stab wounds, a few on her chest, but nothing got her heart or her lungs. And then it was really astonishing that the injuries to her abdomen did not result in infection, especially with all of the debris. So doctors had to go in and like meticulously remove every grain of sand, which think about how tiny sand is. And then realize that you can't even actually imagine how tiny sand is because it's that small. Yeah. So they got all of that out. And also with all of the violence that was done to her abdomen, none of her internal organs were damaged. Wow. 
So when I say these doctors are like, um, our explanation is this is a miracle. That was literally their explanation because it defied everything that they had ever seen. And I believe to this day, these doctors still say this is one of the most astonishing cases of survival they've ever seen. And one of the most brutal cases of a victim attack that they had ever seen. Yeah. So the next morning, the police arrived at the hospital. They visited Allison in her hospital room and they started showing her images in a folder. And she pointed to the images of Franz and Tien's. They had gotten in trouble with the law before. So she points to their pictures and writes their names down. At this time, though, she's intubated and she can't speak. The police explained to the doctor that the chief prosecutor said that their case would be a lot stronger if Allison could verbalize her accusation and say their names. Are you fucking kidding me? Was basically exactly what the doctor was thinking, because... He was concerned that Allison would not be able to breathe on her own. Like, she was intubated, and they had just done major surgery on her neck. And so he was like, if I remove that intubation, I could jeopardize all the work we did to her trachea. I could mess with those those, uh, sutures, and that wouldn't be good. She literally had her trachea sliced open, and you're like, well, we get it, she's intubated, but but hurt writing their names and stuff that's not good enough like what also what if she were mute what if she couldn't talk yeah like what if the attack had damaged her uh, trachea so much that she couldn't talk does that does that mean that like oh well case isn't strong enough that's stupid the doctor explained the situation to allison and she told him that she wanted to speak and she said remove the intubation and The doctor's like, are you sure? I don't know if you're going to be able to breathe. And she's like, yep. So he removes the tube. And Allison's first words were, that's wonderful. My attackers were Franz and Tien's. Because again, she is a badass boss bitch. And nothing is going to stop her from making sure these two are off the streets. How can a person be this inspirational? Trust me, it gets even more amazing, if that's even possible. It is. Oh my god. So Allison's recovery took years, and it was extremely painful. And she actually was not the only victim. There were two other women who had been raped uh, before Allison, but they weren't murdered. And Allison was their third known victim of Franz and Tien's, and... It was almost as if they were like, well, shit, these other two women talked, so the next one we rape, we gotta kill her. You know, instead of, like, not doing it. Instead of just not raping people. So the police brought Franz to the station, and I apologize, I'm sure I've called him Franz a couple of times in this episode, it's Franz. So the police brought Franz to the station, and they charged him with attempted murder, and they told him Allison was alive. Franz was shocked, and... He told the police that there was no reason for him to argue because they clearly knew everything that had happened. And so he actually takes off a ring that he had on his finger that belonged to Allison that he had stolen from her. And it's what the fuck It still had her blood on it. And so police, even with Franz um, and Tien's, they arrested him as well. Even with them saying that they were guilty or whatever, they could at any moment plead not guilty And so police had to make sure they had absolutely everything they needed. 
So they collected everything. And Allison cooperated with every step in the case, even though she was beyond tired of pictures being taken of her injuries during the healing process and showing the brutality of them. And the trial was only six months after the attack. Before it got, you know, to the trial portion, Allison had to identify them in a lineup. And originally, victims would look at a lineup of people And they would need to go up to the person who they were accusing and touch them on the shoulder. What? Yeah, some of these uh, former, thank God, former laws in South Africa, I do not understand. This is so fucked up. So in this case, it was the very first time that one-way glass was used for identification, which that's the norm today when there's a lineup. And, you know, you've got the wall with the measurements and everyone's like, dress the same or whatever. And they're like, which one is it? One, two, three, or four or five. And you're like, oh, it's definitely three. So Allison's case was what established that in South Africa. But even this one-way glass identification, that's still traumatizing for a victim. Yeah. There's only a pane of glass separating her from her attackers. So Franz was sentenced to three life terms without the possibility of parole. (sighs) Oh, thank God. You said three, and I... I was about to flip this desk. Three life terms without the possibility of parole. And Tien's was sentenced to one life term and 25 years without parole. However, in October 2015, they became eligible for parole. What? They're still in jail, but they are parole eligible. Which I know that is horrifying because it does open up this possibility that they could get out. But I just always try to think of how many murderers and attempted murderers have a life sentence, get like the possibility for parole and never get out. I try to lean on that. I know Allison now has this fear that they could get out. And I hate that she's living with that. But I'm trying to think of the like, but they won't, right? Because they can't, right? Yeah. I mean, think how many cases you hear um, of someone who's in jail and they've been denied parole 14 times or things like that. I mean, it's, I feel like it's common to hear cases like that. So. Well, and on the flip side, just to say it, you also hear about the cases when they do get out and you're like, what the actual fuck? So Allison has since traveled the world sharing her story and being an advocate for victims and how she overcame what happened. She wanted to teach others how to overcome obstacles. And she says there's the ABCs of how to overcome something. Attitude, belief, and choice. And she had some very just profound things that I I wanted to repeat. You can't control what happens to you in life but you can control what you do in your life. And when someone calls her extraordinary, she says, no, there are not extraordinary people. There are just ordinary people who sometimes do extraordinary things. And that's what she did. And one of the most amazing parts of this story, and this is what I'll close out with. Allison was told after this severe attack on her abdomen that she would obviously never have kids, but she did. She had two children. Wow carried them to full term and gave natural labor to both of them after being told she could never have children. And remember Tian that I talked 
um, about earlier, the guy who stopped in his car to save her. He was actually yeah. one of the doctors that was a part of, I think, the birth of her second child. Oh my, what? Your case is one that if it were a a novel I read, it would be both way too, you know, you can't suspend your disbelief this much to accept that this is real. And also, this is not going to happen. This, it's too storybook. The guy who saves her, that pushes him to be a doctor, and he's involved in the birth of her child. Like, come on. But it's real life. Yeah. Real life is so much crazier than the most ridiculous fiction thing you can think of. It's true. You think that these stories of fiction are the crazy things out there? It's not. It's the things that are real because they're real. Like, I know that sounded like whatever, but like, yeah. Allison's case is one that will stick with me forever. She, yeah. I will never forget this. I don't think you will ever forget this. And a lot of our listeners, y'all, I honestly don't think you will forget this either. Allison's a hero. She's amazing. I know she says she's just ordinary. And I love that statement. But by God, I can't look at it as anything but extraordinary. Because I don't even know yeah. how she stood up with those injuries. That feat alone, that moment of holding her intestine in and holding her head up and standing up that that was like the moment of like i'm going to make it because i'm gonna make this happen i am not dying well and she may say that she's just an ordinary person who had to do extraordinary things but also the choices and things people do is what define people so the fact that she did do these extraordinary things and just this has this unbelievable power that makes her extraordinary yeah so that is the case of the survival of allison botha wow wow is right it's honestly the only thing that you can say i i have to follow that up you do have to follow that up (laughs) um but you know what yours is going to be a story of survival and that in itself is phenomenal. Yes, my story is um very intense and also you'll see by the end but a fucking course uh, somehow I I think our cases are very similar in ways that neither of us would have expected. I don't like the sound of that, but okay, tell me who's your survivor? My survivor is Teresa Saldana. And if that name rings a little bit familiar, she is a famous actress you may have heard of. And um, I'll go into you know who she is, what she's been in, 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 in like 10 seconds. In Like now? It, basically. Um, the sources I used, uh, I used the Wikipedia page for Teresa Saldana, an article from Ranker by Mike Rothschild. An article in Deadline by Greg Evans and Eric Peterson. An article in the Saturday Evening Post by Troy Brownfield. And an article in Gizmodo by Cheryl Eddy. So, Teresa, she's best known as an actress. She was in a movie with Joe Pesci. Uh, It was the movie Raging Bull in 1980. I've never heard of it. I've heard of that Uh, one. And she was also in a TV show, The Comish. It was in the 90s, and she was, like, the wife in the show. 
that's kind of i think she was nominated for a golden globe i want to say for her work in the comish i've never heard of either of these i've heard of the raging bull but not the comish so she kind of really began her start in acting when she was 12 she took a bunch of acting classes and in 1977 she was in an off-broadway performance of the new york city street show i've not heard of literally any of these things uh but in performing that a talent scout found her and basically that's what pushed her into hollywood her first movie was 1978's nunzio i'm 90 percent sure all of these are fake but they're not they're real they're definitely not fake it's just that you don't watch movies from the 70s which is fair no you don't even watch movies from 2015 that is that's true and from then she started performing in, or acting in different movies um kind of really growing and becoming this up and coming hollywood star really Another one of the movies she was in was the movie Defiance, also in 1980, opposite Robert De Niro. Heard of that one. I feel like I may have heard of it. But it's also I called don't... Defiance, and it can, it's one of those movies where you're like, yeah, I totally know that one. Defiance, exactly. Deliverance, you know. Sure. So these two movies, Defiance and Nunzio, they really were a huge part of forming this obsession in the mind of Arthur Jackson. And he would become her stalker and attempted murderer. These stories are scary when obsession comes into play and what people do when they're really obsessed with another person and they stalk them. And they, it, it, this makes me think of the Jodie Foster case you talked about, the, how he was going to kill Nixon for her, right? No, wait, Reagan, Reagan. You know, I don't know why, but I always get Reagan and Nixon confused in my head, even though I shouldn't. There's no reason for that confusion, but it's there. It's a name thing. Old white men. You see one, you see them all. (laughs) But um, yeah, I I very much saw a lot of similarities in this case and uh, the John Hinckley Jr. case. That's his name. Mm hmm. So... Arthur Jackson, he started stalking Teresa for about 18 months, and she had no idea. And when I say stalking, I, I'm going to get into it. It's stalking like I've honestly never even imagined. What? So he was a drifter from Scotland, and reportedly he saved up a bunch of his welfare money to come to the U.S., with the purpose of tracking her down. And to track her down, he even hired a private investigator to find, like, uh, her mom's phone number. Because Teresa, being famous, her phone number, her address were unlisted. Mm, Right. But through this private investigator, he was able to find her mom's phone number. That's creepy. Yeah. And he was doing all of this to get as close as he could to her. And this is also 1982 when this is happening. So once he got uh, her mom's phone number, he called her and he claimed to be Martin Scorsese's assistant. Martin Scorsese directed uh, Raging Bull, which Teresa was just in. 
So he's claiming to be Scorsese's assistant and was like, oh, hey, um, you know, can you give me Teresa's like address and phone number? I want to, you know, Martin really wants to reach out to her about this new film opportunity we're going to be doing in Europe. So it was convincing enough that her mom was like, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, This is her address. I hate that. That is so conniving and convincible. And wow, that's not a word. Convincing. I feel really bad for her mom and for her because I'm really scared about what you're about to tell me. Um, But she survived is what I'm going to keep telling myself. Yes. Yes, she did. So in the middle of the day, broad daylight, he goes to her house uh, in West Hollywood, walks up to her door, knocks on it. She answers. and He's like, excuse me, are you Teresa Saldana? She's like, yes, like I am. And once she says yes, he pulls out a five and a half inch hunting knife. And just starts stabbing her. Oh my god. In her doorway. Okay, it's the at-home thing that yours has in common. And uh, Not what I was thinking when I mentioned it earlier, but th- yeah, that's another thing. Well, and I keep thinking back to my recent machete murder case, where Athalia Ponzel was standing in her doorway. Mm-hmm. What is going on with all these at-home murders? Yeah. So he's stabbing her in the torso, and there are a lot of onlookers and witnesses that are guests are just like on the sidewalk or on the street seeing this, um, like families with children that are just kind of seeing it happen. Yeah, I mean, what do you do in that situation? And this is also, I think, right after, or maybe in just a few years after, uh, the murder of Kitty Genovese. Oh my god! Yeah, I saw... um, a couple of the articles I was reading were making a lot of parallels uh, between the two. but And that was and, the woman in New York that was killed and, like, people heard her screaming and, like, no one called 911 and she just, like, died because no one did yeah. anything? Well, that's the, like, the story everyone knows. There's a lot more detail to it, but essentially, yes. But in Teresa's case, a neighbor, a delivery... I think it was a neighbor, he... Was across the street in a building. Don't know if he lived there or not because he was a delivery man. Right. But I think lived there. Uh, His name is Jeff Fenn. But he heard her screaming and he rushed across the street. Oh my god. And he wrestled the knife away from Jackson. And like was able to subdue him, pin him down, get him away from her. At this point, other people, other onlookers or witnesses had called police, the ambulance. And so paramedics got there. But Jeff Fenn, rando dude, sees this happening and just hero busts in to get this guy away from her. But there are people like that. Like, there are still people who just, like, all care for their well-being goes away. And they are just sprint into action. And they're in, like you just said, hero mode. Where it's like... No, mm-hmm. this person needs help and I'm I'm going to help them. And that is not something that a lot of people are capable of. It is different, like in my case, where the attack had already happened. And so in my yeah. head, I'm like, you got to do something. Who wouldn't do something? But when the attack is happening, it is human nature to not get involved. And I'm glad there are people that go against that natural instinct of flight and they fight. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to just 
completely block out every piece of like self-preservation. Yeah. The as people is basically our one base core instinct. Survival. And you have to be like Yeah. And you have to be like, yeah, but that my survival, my self-preservation doesn't matter right now. I know. Um so Teresa was stabbed ten times in the torso. Mm. But paramedics got there. They rushed her to Cedar Sinai Medical Center. But by the time she got to the hospital, most of the blood had drained from her body <gasps> and her heart had actually stopped. Oh my god. Those were some deep ones. Yeah. I mean, it's a I mean, it's five a, and a half inch hunting knife. It's a big knife. Hunting knives are made to... Kill? Kill. But after four hours of surgery... She started her recovery. She did survive, and she wound up being in the hospital for four months recovering. In 1984, in a victim impact statement she gave to a judge during the trial, she said, in her own words, I will never forget the searing, ghastly pain, the grotesque and devastating experience of this person nearly butchering me to death. Or the bone-chilling sight of my own blood splattered everywhere. Oh my god. Do we know why he attacked her? Like, why he wanted to kill her? He was obsessed with her. And all he... he, Like, the only way he knew to handle that feeling was stabbing her? Basically. I mean, I'll go into it in just a little bit. Okay. But he was severely mentally ill, so it... It doesn't make a lot of sense. There is no true reason. Yeah, there's there is no logic behind it. But I'll I'll go into it in just a sec. But Jackson, he served 14 years in prison for the assault, and he also had time added onto that for making threats against her and Jeff, who rescued her while he was in prison. Like he didn't stop, and while he's in jail, he's continuing to make threats to her. Wow. Like, in one instance, in March of 88, he's in jail. Teresa learned that he'd sent a letter to Jonathan Felt, who was a producer for Geraldo. And in this letter, Jackson outlined his plan to assassinate Teresa. He wrote, I am capable of alternating between sentiment and savagery, romance and reality. Police or FBI protection for T.S. won't stop the hit squad. In another letter he wrote, he talked about how he wanted not only to assassinate Teresa, but also to assassinate U.S. military personnel in Europe. That seems like a random added addition. Mm-hmm. And then in eighty-nine, in March of 89, so like a year later, he repeated his plans uh, to assassinate Teresa in a call to a reporter in L.A. And Ellen Grian, who's the reporter, she said, he threatened to kill Teresa. He also had some fantasy that Gregory Peck, Charlton Heston, and Charles Bronson were going to get him out of prison earlier, but they betrayed him. So he's very clearly suffering some severe mental illness and delusions and his reality is fantasy kind of thing. Yeah, his reality is nothing like the actual reality. So, Teresa was terrified for her life. 
And so when he was scheduled for parole in 1989, she was advocating against it. She made a stand. And her doing this, it really drew a lot of attention to the legal system's difficulties in caring for violent but mentally ill offenders. Right. Because, yes, he should be in prison, but that probably is not the best option for him. You know, he should be in a mental uh, institution or facility. Mental health facility, that's the word. Yeah. Prison's not going to help him get better. As much as we want the prison system to be reformed and to be about rehabilitation, definitely at this point in time, it is absolutely not. It's still not today um, in a lot of places. And I don't think he should have ever gotten out of a mental institution if he was placed in it. But I think that's where it should have been, so he could have gotten some help. I I, I agree. Uh, but these death threats he was sending, uh, it did add time to his sentence. But again, he served 14 years. Mm-hmm. After his 14 years were up, he was pretty immediately extradited back to the United Kingdom. And in 1996, he was put on trial there for robbery and murder he'd done in 1966 so 30 years prior and in this case he was found not guilty by diminished responsibility Mm. but he was committed to a british psychiatric hospital and he was there for the rest of his life Uh, he died in the hospital in 2004 i think of like heart failure well, I'm glad he did finally, hopefully, get some help he needed. Yeah. But again, I agree with him being there for life. Me too. So his stalking and methods uh, may sound eerily familiar to another tragic stalking and murder case of another famous person. And that's because Jackson's like method and way of finding Teresa, it inspired Robert John Bardo who wound up hiring a private investigator to contact an actress, Rebecca Schaefer, and he then murdered her. I thought this sounded eerily familiar. And that Rebecca Schaefer was murdered in 1989, so just a couple years after Teresa's attack. You can see the inspiration and the copycat. You can see it's a copycat stalking. Absolutely. And attack. Yeah. So, Teresa Saldana, she recovered from her injuries, and she went back to her career. It was what she loved. In the 90s, that's when she gained a lot of fame on the show The Comish that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And in another turn of events that's eerily similar to your case, uh, Jeff Finn, who was the guy who saved Teresa, going through this um, and these events, it inspired him to get the career that he'd always wanted. So he quit his job as a delivery driver and became a police officer. That is awesome. Yeah. Go Jeff. Obviously, he has the instinct for a police officer, considering he just did that. I'm still amazed at him running across the street to save her when he heard a scream. Oh, same. So this attack, it changed Teresa forever. She became a very passionate and outspoken advocate for crime victims. She worked to raise awareness about stalking. And 
1990, after her attack and uh, the murder of Rebecca Schaefer, she led the charge and was influential and um, vital to California passing the nation's very first anti-stalking law. Oh. Yeah. The very first anti-stalking laws came out in 1990 in the U.S. Oh my god, Tyler. Okay, you guys, there was maybe like two millimeters of room at the top of this glass. He was trying to drain the whole bottle. I saw it happening. And he realized well, he I, couldn't because there's, this a, much left. there's a swig left. Oh, oh, he's going to fill it back up to the two millimeter line. There you go. Do you need a straw so you can drink that? Listen, it's my little, I don't know, Christmas ornament full of wine. It is. <laughs> um, That was distracting. So I just can't believe it. I'm going to have to document that. And that's going up on our Instagram. Yeah, that's that's fair. Just like the last I, one. I'm just... I, you know, I, I pre-apologized for my quarantine hair. Um, I'll just say that right here now. It's okay. We all need haircuts. But anyway, Teresa Saldana. So one of her biggest things she did, she founded the Victims for Victims organization that a lot of you may have heard of. Teresa Saldana started that. Um, and that fought for these uh, anti-stalking laws. And this is one of the things that blows my mind so much. She played herself in a TV movie in 1984 called Victims for Victims, the Teresa Saldana story. No way. She portrayed herself in a movie about her story and everything that happened. I feel like that is not common for the actual, which not all victims are actresses, but even so... For her to play herself, number one, that sounds traumatizing, like cutting open a wound. And mm-hmm. I'm really surprised. But I well, think she wanted to tell her own story. Exactly. It's just that level of like, yes, this is traumatizing. But if I can use my story to help others and get this out there and change legislation and make sure that this doesn't happen to other people... I'm gonna fucking do it. Like, again. Like Allison. Another, just like Allison. This episode, it's the episode of the badass boss bitches. Female empowerment. For fucking real. Um, her organization, Victims for Victims, and her leading the charge, I was very influential in passing a lot of different legislation. The anti stalking bill I mentioned earlier in 1990. And then also a law in 94 that governed the privacy and disclosure of personal information that was gathered by the Department of Motor Vehicles. So previously, like, the information from the DMV was out there. So if someone really wanted to find your car or your address or you, they could look through it. and Like, they could find it. What? And these, yeah. And these bills, the stuff that she was championing, made it private. You know, made it to where people were not easily able to find that kind of information. Just in California or everywhere? Uh, That one was federal statute. And that was in 94 that that passed. Thank you, Teresa. I did not know that used to be public information. I don't know if it was like 
public public information but public enough that you could find it yeah i think it was something you could probably submit a request to the like county government and get shit also side note if y'all didn't know please don't ever post a photo of your license plate on the internet it is too easy to attach that to you still by the way i see i see people do that and it scares me you know what scares me i've seen so much of this on facebook lately that's like the let's get to know you quizzes that are so clearly questions that would probably be i forgot my password questions things are like what was your first car or what was your elementary school your middle school and it's like aha uh-huh, this is fun reminiscing and i'm like y'all i've never thought of that tyler oh my god I don't do those just because I'm like, I don't want to take the time. But that is, I'm really glad you brought up that lens because I don't know if I would have made that connection. That's literally, I see that all the time. And that is my first thought when I when I see them. Is I'm like, well, that sure looks like the pick three security questions. That's because they terrifying. are. It'll be it like, is. Yes. What street did you grow up on? You're like, ah, this is so fun. And I'm like, oh my god. Are you going to just also throw in your mother's maiden name? That's yeah. scary, dude. Y'all just be mindful of stuff, of information and shit you're putting out there. Definitely be mindful because so much of our lives are online now that it's scary to think about what someone could use that information for that's not a good use yeah so teresa saldana uh she passed away at the age of 61 on june 6th of 2016 she went to the hospital she had pneumonia and it got really bad she died and most likely her injuries that she suffered in her attack in the 80s and the damage it did to her organs played a pretty big part in the pneumonia killing her but while she passed away her legacy for victim advocacy and just this huge impact she had on anti-stalking laws and things that honestly i think we not forget about but feel so obvious right today that like yeah of course we have anti-stalking laws that's a no-brainer that's because of the work she did and uh, how she used her experience and everything. You know, said, I'm not going to let this destroy me. I'm going to take this and do what I can to make the world a safer place for others. And so her her legacy lives on today. And that is the case of the survival of Teresa Saldana. All right. Well, I think let's just jump into postmortem. I agree. So you made a prediction at the beginning of the episode, but how do you yes. feel now? I mean, I think our cases are in so many ways very similar, but in also in so many cases very different. And they're, yeah. it's so hard to compare because... But isn't that the problem are, every episode? I mean, yes. <laughs> but I mean, these cases, it's two of these just like boss bitch survivor women who... Against all odds and against all expectations, took these horrible and traumatizing and the darkest moments of their lives to 
shine a light for as many other people as they could. I mean, Teresa being so instrumental in this anti-stalking legislation is huge. Yeah, she changed federal laws or she like added federal law. Like she made something, she created awareness for the entire country. That is huge. And Allison does that too. I mean, yes. she travels and says her story and spreads her inspiration. And just how much she went through the holding in her organ holding in her intestines with one hand holding her head up with the other and just that that will to keep fighting i think for me that's where the intensity is is in your case we have so much detail about what she was going through that entire time and just the physicality of the intensity of it yeah is for me what brings it over it's a really difficult case to listen to and it's hard we talked about this during it but it's it's almost hard to believe that it's reality because it doesn't seem possible and yet it was completely and the fact that she can get to the hospital and sign her name and write her mom's name and the phone number and be like hey can you give her a call before i go into surgery just before i get under that anesthesia it's like what i'm sorry Mm -hmm. Your head's being held on by, like, a string. And then, after all the surgery, for them to be like, well, it'll make it easier to convict, but you might die if we take your innervation tube out. And she's like, pull it the fuck out. Let's make sure these motherfuckers are not going to do this again. And that her case is what brought forward using the one-way glass for lineups and... All of the things that were changed in the way that South Africa was doing their trials and like trial prep. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, these women, if I finish my life at the end of my life and I've been half a percent as inspirational and strong and incredible as they have been, shit, I made it. Ah, uh, Yeah. With all of that said, I will say I still think Allison is the most intense case in this episode. Uh, Same. I mean, Allison's case is going to be one that, like you mentioned when you were doing it, sticks with us both forever. Forever. So, next episode, I will be picking the topic, which uh, I haven't done in a while. I know, it's it's been a while. Have fun. Hope you pick something good. Oh. You will. I, I have something in mind. Yeah, I know you do. Which, uh, You've had weeks to you know, think about it. <laughs> I've had weeks to think about it. And I guess um, if I can give any spoiler, I could just say for our next episode, Bon Appetit. That's creepy, dude. I, I know. <laughs> that I, I hated that uh, as I did it, but it's there. There you go. Um, if you enjoy this episode, if you enjoy our podcast, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. Let us know what you think. Thank you in advance. Yes. And while you're doing that, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. TBH, Instagram is my favorite because I don't understand Twitter. And I don't know, Instagram's just, it's so easy and quick. I feel like you can easily go to an Instagram and, you know, spend a minute or two there and be like, "Mm, yay. Facebook, you have to like navigate things. 
I don't know. Check out our Instagram. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, you have a really good Also point. the others. And with that, thank you all so, so much for tuning in. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.